It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 197, King Josiah in the Zeal of the Lord, Part 2. Check out this verse from episode 134 titled 928 BC, one of the craziest stories ever told. 1 Kings 13, by the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, he will sacrifice the priest of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign that the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and ashes on it will be poured out. Interesting how this verse hasn't been fulfilled yet, over 400 years later. Now, this is sad that no one had torn down the high places Solomon had had built, and we'll cover that too, Uh, but these high places at Bethel, they haven't been torn down yet. But Josiah will do it, desecrating the sites and covering the sites with human bones. He's so radical. Now we get to see something that's just super interesting. It's way beyond him within his boundaries in Judah. See, Bethel's in northern Israel. Within Judah, he's he's conducted this great mass-sweeping revival and desecration of the high places of idol worship. But he hasn't left his country borders yet. So this is super interesting. I mean, it's actually a—he's going to conduct a military raid or invasion and in the process tear down strongholds. Geopolitically, there's a whole lot going on. The Babylonians and the Persians are on the rise. The Egyptians have just broken free from the Assyrian yoke. The Babylonians under Nabopolassar have risen up and seized much of their regional territory from the Assyrians. The future Persians under Xyaxares, the same. And with it, the Egyptians have rebelled by right of Assyrian evacuation. And at the moment, there's four nation states. Three have broken away from Assyria. I mean, this Judah is, in his own right, is going to find themselves independent too. But with such a rising, the Assyrians were on retreat. The Babylonians and the future Persians are, have now joined forces as well to fight their common foe. Will this just be another rebellion against the Assyrians that ends in horrible consequences for the rebels? Or are we looking at an Assyria that actually finally meets its end? And if we go with the judgment prophecies of the age, time is up for Assyria. So back to northern Israel, Um, the Assyrians have garrisons in Samaria and northern Israel, but Josiah couldn't help but notice further south in Judah and in Jerusalem. Notice how their forces are getting smaller and smaller by the years and now the months. The fortress towns of Jericho and Samaria and Megiddo, which house thousands of Assyrian soldiers, contain only a skeleton crew now. Word would come to Josiah that the Assyrians have sent another thousand soldiers home to fight in their home battle. Another hundred left without notice today. 
the reports would just come in after one after another until he started hearing other news. The Babylonians and the Persians have laid siege to Asher. Their forces outnumber the Assyrians, and the news would flow daily. Josiah, almost disinterested at first, couldn't help but watch the Berlin Wall as it was being torn down. Geopolitically, the world was changing overnight. News would come from northern Israel. The entire garrison at Megiddo has been abandoned. Soon after, the Jericho garrison has been withdrawn. News of news. No Assyrians are now in northern Israel. Josiah receives word and ponders what to do. And then, almost involuntarily, he's told what to do. And I imagine him praying and God not answering through prophets or even his voice, but through divine circumstance. A messenger comes to Jerusalem, and the word is obvious through others and now circumstances, what he must do. The word from the messenger from Samaria is, My Lord, I ride from Samaria. We Samarians are being attacked, and there's raids by Moabite warriors and horsemen. Will you protect us? What would your response be? Well, Josiah's action was probably immediate. He mobilizes his army, which is probably like 20,000 soldiers. I mean, it's pretty peddly by world standards. And he marches over the border to the previous location of northern Israel. In his heart, he still expects an Assyrian army to appear out of nowhere. But instead, he's hailed as an instant savior and the lord of new lands by default. The people welcome him and his protection. There was no battle, no war. But over the course of a few months, he transverses the entirety of the region of the previous kingdom of northern Israel, subjugating it just by um, sheer claiming it. And everywhere he marched with this small army, he was welcomed as their lord. And without a fight, Josiah just unified the kingdoms of Judah and northern Israel, something the world hadn't seen since the time of Solomon. Unbelievable circumstances led to one of the greatest breakthroughs. A massive territorial gain with the swift march of his army. And before he actually marches further north from the, from the true border, I mean, this is like his first action. We, I just said he marches north and kind of claims the territory, but there's something he does very first, right when he crosses the border. He takes a hook east and marches to Bethel. Here he claims and fulfills and performs a word of prophecy spoken over his life, a word that man couldn't have planned since Ammon named his son Josiah, not knowing the prophecy spoken over his, this name. Why would he name his son Josiah since he was he, Ammon was an enemy of God? Ammon, the father of Josiah, destroyed Bibles. He probably destroyed the prophecies that contained the name Josiah. It's funny thought to consider that God, you know, this is the guy that destroyed the prophecies. He destroyed the Bible as we know it. His, his father Manasseh tried to do the same thing. And here they are. He just accidentally names his son Josiah, fulfilling prophecy. It's just amazing. God can influence even the names of the sons of the wicked. All right, before Josiah marches on Bethel, he learns... When they read the book of the law and the words of the prophets and the book of the kings and the chronicles, discovering a prophecy was given about a man with his name, him. Josiah would have known the words from the beginning of the podcast episode that his name was prophesied before his birth at this stage. 
And when the open door was laid before him to invade northern Israel, his heart wasn't on conquest, but the fulfillment of God's word over northern Israel and the desecration of the golden calf center at Bethel. He arrives with his army at Bethel, and priests are still there conducting their sacrifices. He rushes upon the center and seizes the priest and everyone there. 2 Kings 22:15. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place, made by Jeroboam son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it, in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, What is that tomb I see? The people of the city said, It marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared the bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. And just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed all the shrines of the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria that had aroused the Lord's anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Unbelievable how he fulfilled the words spoken over him. We have to park here and discuss what just happened and the fulfillment of prophecy and the mysterious amount of time between the prophecy about him and the date of its fulfillment. And afterward, we'll cover the new perspective of this united Israel. 430 years later, a man by the name of Josiah fulfilled the prophecy over his life. God even called him by name, and as the man for the hour, the man who would tip the scales and bring God's judgment. And just like Cyrus, whose name was called out over 150 years before his birth, we have a season of fulfillment where Josiah shows up 430 years later to the day to fulfill his word. The God of a time and space chooses to show up and show off sometimes, with such record precision, it freaks me out. So what's going on? Why, why 430 years? It's not the only time in the Bible where God waits 430 years to judge. It's not the first time God allowed evil to persist for 430 years. Here's the first reference in the Bible, and it was mentioned by God to this amount of time. Genesis 15:12. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a thick sleep, and a thick dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a land, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So further in Exodus, it actually references a, a time period of 430 years um, when they actually invade the land. And using an analysis of what's going on and looking at history, could it be it's the amount of time that appears to be God's maximum allotted time for a civilization or at least in this part of the world to exist with its current strongholds. The perception of history that we're kind of suggesting is the stronghold perspective. Kingdoms of the earth versus kingdom of God. 
the purpose for war, and the changing of territories and boundaries. Remember Apostle Paul, Acts 17, 26. From one man he made all the nations, and that they should inherit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and as some of your own prophets said, we are his offspring. So let's go super history nerd and discuss timelines of world empires and the significance of that 430 years. That's Abraham's word about the Amorites. Okay, if that's it, no worries. We've got just two coincidences. But here we are with Josiah and the tearing down of Jeroboam's stronghold after 430 years in the same place. Okay, getting freaky. That's still only two. Now it's going to get more interesting. The Roman Empire, not the Republic, lasted around 430 years. That's crazy. Carthage, from Dido to its destruction by Rome, around 430 years. And this is not native to monarchies only. The Republic of Florence, far in the future, lasts around 430 years. There's a pattern here. It's not perfect. Goodness no. Civilizations come and go, but it's super interesting. I mean, the Assyrians, they didn't last 430 years. Babylonians, Persians, they're not going to last even close to that. So it's not a perfect pattern, but there's a lot of commonality here. Types and shadows and patterns are fascinating. Do you put hope in them and think you can project the future? Eh, don't think you are that smart, please. <laughs> but there's a fascination when, when you can analyze and find patterns uh, before our historical eyes. Paul said that man was set aside for a time and place, and God sets the borders and times for nations. The maximum in most cases has a peculiar 430 years story. I don't get it, but there's something about it. God has his reasons, and it's just amazing when you find these kind of patterns. Civilizations come and go with varying amounts of time, but if you find a chart out there with a measure of history, you get to around the 400-year mark, and the numbers drop significantly. Rome's another example. It had a monarchy, a republic, and then an empire, or just another monarchy, however you want to look at it. The first age of their original monarchy wasn't significant in time, um, to match this formula, but uh, the Republic time frame was around 400, maybe 450 years, um, since the age can't be measured super well. But the Empire time frame is around 430 years. So let's go back to that original mention by Abraham. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Not till their sin has reached their full measure. It's like a stronghold reaches a maximum demonic power base and God must deal with it. It's a perception of history you don't read about, that the enemy is building strongholds and societies because we are in a fallen world. In the end, God will destroy them and he does it in time. Each major civilization or government has eventually fallen, and with it there is a healthy tearing down of demonic strongholds. The deeper the strongholds, the greater the measure of tearing down that is required. In ancient times, the temples went with the civilizations because this was their spiritual or demonic power base. So at the same time, this goes for you and me. What do we treasure that's not of Jesus? 
the more we invest and build up our confidence and faith in something that's not him, the more painful it is when the idols have to go. Nations have a horrible time clinging to their strongholds and making them legacies or traditions and making them a real controlling demonic thing that takes root in a land. What are you clinging to? Think about it. What are you clinging to that must be given to God? So back to this perception of history. If the general maximum civilization age is around 430 years, then this is the maximum time God allows a civilization to be around in its current form of government. Rome had a republic for that 450-ish time frame. Then it changed to an empire or a form of a monarchy for about 430 years. Maybe in God's eyes, a revolution here and there isn't such a bad thing if it achieves the purpose of uprooting darkness in enemy strongholds. This perception of history is one where you have to take a heavenly warfare perspective. Darkness must be uprooted or the enemy will grow too strong, not ever for God, but over man. 430 years is the maximum years God will allow the devil and his principalities to build itself up over a civilization and building of a principality over a nation. Maybe after 430 years, there's such a spiritual demon tipping point that God doesn't allow to um, influence man anymore. God is all-powerful, so it's not an issue with him, it's weak mankind, who seems to repeat the same cycle of sin, yet in different cultures and forms. Let's call this the civilization stronghold theory. All right, so Josiah continues his campaign in northern Israel, and I truly believe he now holds all the traditional territory of Israel, northern and southern Israel, and at this stage, he consider it he considers it all his country now, increasing his army and tax base, probably befriending but not allying himself with the enemies of Assyria. Josiah now controls all of Israel. Next, he went back to Jerusalem, 1 Kings twenty-two twenty-one. The king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Helkiah, the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. Let's conclude this powerful moment of Josiah with the confirmation of the importance of the words we just spoke. Deuteronomy 6 sets a high bar of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Here we are seeing the reference to this fulfillment of scripture by Josiah. What a king. What a noble, radical follower of God we see in Josiah. May we all learn from the story of Josiah and his great role model for us. May many Josiahs live in this generation, radically reforming the world around us. May even listeners of this program walk into Josiah-like moments and fulfill great purposes for God in their lives.
Can you see why I portrayed him the way I did in the class of 640 BC? He had the greatest, one of the greatest, 40-yard sprints in world history. But he originally was running in the two-mile. And when the Bible was rediscovered, he was placed in the correct moment in time and competitive event that he was made for. Placed in the starting block and told to sprint, the king exceeded all before him in radical-like zeal. He was not a pace guy, a racer, but a sprinter set aside for a specific season to conduct an unparalleled destruction on idol-worshipping sinners and to literally clean house in Israel. Now the next episode, we cover the prophet Zephaniah, followed by the remainder of Josiah's kingship. And, and as awesome as we talked about Josiah, we still have to remember he's got he's but a man. I mean, he's normal. He's He still makes mistakes. And the end of his life is a bit of a mystery, and we'll try to cover it. Uh, but it fits right into a, a global campaign or um, battlefield that's going to show up and even in world history. So the world is in uproar. Babylon and the ancestors of the Persians have allied themselves and set themselves to the destruction of Assyria. The Assyrians have evacuated Egypt and Israel and Babylon and areas of future Persia. Pharaoh Necho rises to power in Egypt inching his way into the old Philistine territory, allying himself with the coastal peoples, ever encroaching on Israel despite their friendship. Josiah wisely consolidates his country, carefully allying, well, let's not say allying himself, but carefully making friends, but not allowing alliances to be there between him and other nations. There's a game of risk going on. It unfolds around him. And Necho figures out if he wants to fight against Assyria like everyone else or for them as Babylon and the Persians close in on the hated Assyrians. After we cover the prophet Zephaniah, we have the sieges of Asher and Nineveh, and we set up the famous Battle of Carchemish. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.